You may be seated. And let us pray. Father God, you are good, you are wise, you are sovereign. You are here with us. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your son Jesus. His life, his blood covers us as we sing, he is all. He is all in our lives. May that be true. May that resonate in us. May it be more true upon leaving here today than even when we came here. And that only happens, Lord, by the sending of your Holy Spirit to illuminate your heart, to illuminate our hearts and our minds to your truth. May we be transformed this morning. May it not be a passing of information, but may it be a bringing of transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we love Jesus more. Maybe love Jesus for the first time and we go out of here excited to proclaim and join him on his mission to see many transformed by him. Father, may I become less and may I get out of the way and may you be the glory. May you be seen this morning. We are hopeless without you here. If you do not go before us, what we do this morning is futile. We pray that you would. We trust that you would. And we ask these things in your son's name, who is our everything, who is our all, who is our hope, who is our king and our friend. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. How are you this morning? How are you this morning? All right. I was like, come on, the coffee should have taken place by now to get you out of the way. My name is Carlos Griego. Uh, you guys can call me Los. If you please, if you like, I don't know, whatever. Um, I'm a pastor here at Desert Springs Church. I am pastor over the well, the college ministry, as well as the men's ministry. So if you have any questions about the men's conference, I'm the guy to ask. I'm putting it together. So uh, fellas, you can come ask me any questions you might have um, whenever. I'm also, and probably what you'll hear more of in the coming months, um, more of my role becoming, um, I'm a church planner. I'm being sent out of Desert Springs here to go plant Redemption Church in Rio Rancho. Um, we are going up there to plant, um, not necessarily we're planting a church, we're planting the gospel to, and praying that through that a church rises that's on mission and excited to see a transformation of a city and really a state um, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, some of you have committed to join us in that mission or here today and some are still praying about it. And um, we are excited that, um, Lord willing, on January 22nd we will hold our first Sunday. Um, service in Rio Rancho. Um, well, being a church planter, one of my favorite books is the book of Acts. For church planters, um, we see it as a book filled with Jesus, with spirit-empowered mission, and with the starting of new churches, the planting of churches all over the world at that time. For a church planter, that's basically our love language. We're excited about those three things, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, empowered mission, and starting new churches. What we're going to do is we're going to break up the book of Acts overview over the next two Sundays. Uh, we're going to kind of cover the first one, nine chapters of the book of Acts this morning. And um, next week we'll look at the rest of the book. Um, I figured if they can do it with one book of a Harry Potter with the movies, we can do it with the book of Acts and cut it up in two parts. Um, I, I, we, I did go through the book of Acts with the well and it took us over a year, so I'm trying to cut it all down into... Uh, 45-minute sermon. We'll see how it goes. Hope you guys have a free afternoon. Um, 
With that, you can turn to the book of Acts, just to chapter 1. And while you're doing that, let me give you some context about this book. It's a sequel. It's a sequel um, to the book of Luke. Um, Actually, Luke mentions that in the first few verses here. He says in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Acts, he says, "In In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke is a doctor. Luke is the beloved physician that Paul talks about later in the epistles. Luke um, is writing to a man named Theophilus. He's written the book of Luke to Theophilus, talking about Jesus' life and ministry on the earth. And now he is continuing that with part two, which is um, Jesus working through the Holy Spirit uh, in the life of the early church and the spreading of his name um, worldwide. Now, Theophilus is probably this um, upper middle class, upper class nobleman in the Roman Empire, and he's just hearing, he's seeing this giant movement of God take place. He's seeing this Christianity just explode on the scene throughout the Roman Empire, and he's wanting to know more about what this means. What is this? Who is this Jesus? Who is this community that's coming up? And so Luke is writing him, telling him about this. So it's kind of like a journalistic entry about the church, about Jesus, and um, it is inspired and inerrant by the Holy Spirit. Well, the first part of actually we'll discuss today has have five marks we're going to look at, and really these five marks will hold together the rest of the book. They'll be seen. There'll be a thread throughout the rest of the book, and really throughout the Christian life. So this um, five marks do not just leave at Acts, but they resonate and they dwell with us as disciples two thousand years later. The first of these marks is the promise that we'll see in the first chapter of the book of Acts. See, Luke starts off right where he had left off pretty much in his first book. Jesus had called the disciples. He had walked with them for three years. He'd gotten the religious leaders of the time angry by his message that he is God, that he can forgive sins, that he has come to forgive sin and to bring people into the kingdom of God. And this leads to his arrest, to his torture, to his crucifixion, death, Three days later, he rises from the dead. And now Luke begins talking as Jesus is there with the disciples before he ascends into heaven and leaves the disciples there to do the work of the ministry. So he's now at the point of sending these disciples out on mission at the beginning of the book of Acts. And now for the disciples, everything has been leading up to this moment. Jesus has called them, he has trained them, he has gotten them ready for this moment. See, there are two positions for the Christian. We are called by Jesus and we are sent by Jesus. There's nothing else. We're called and we're sent people. And now Jesus is about to send them. He had gotten them ready for this by really the first words he spoke to them. The book of Mark, chapter 1, he says... To these men before they're even disciples. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. This was part of the last prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father. In John, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says this, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the, word may be, the world may believe that you sent me. He's saying, I'm praying for unity. I'm praying for the disciples, not just these ones, but the ones that will believe their words. So us too, 
that they're united, that they love each other, they care for each other, that they are one as we are one within the Trinity so that the world believes that I am the Son of God, that you really did send me into the world to do, to bring about forgiveness of sin, and that I am King of kings. And it was the last two things that we have that Jesus says to his disciples. The first we know is the Great Commission in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And now in Acts, the risen Lord Jesus says, so when they came to get, had come together, starting in verse 6 of chapter 1, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Verse 8 there will be the thesis for the book of Acts. So as you begin to listen to it um, later this week, verse 8 is the guiding roadmap, the guiding thesis, the statement that will really steer the whole book of Acts and really steer the whole Christian life for us. It's really the guiding verse for us as well. Because this verse here, this go and be witnesses in Jerusalem, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, end of the earth, that's until he returns. So this verse is for us as well. You see, um, Redemption Church right now, it's um, in a church planting network called Acts 29. Don't turn, don't look, if there's no Acts chapter 29. And here's the point. The, mess, the mission continues today. We are the continuing, ongoing, quote-unquote, next chapter of the book of Acts. As we go to proclaim and make disciples, and be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus to our neighbors, to our friends, to the state of New Mexico, to the country, to the world. It continues with us today. So this is the thesis, the guiding verse for the rest of the book, verse 1a. And you can keep your Bible for the rest of the message. I'll be going to a bunch of verses, trying to keep up. might not be wise. But really quickly... We need to put ourselves in the shoes of these disciples. Because I think we've read this, we've put on coffee mugs, we've put on bumper stickers, this verse. But let's, let's look at who these men were that Jesus was telling here in the book of Acts to go and do this. Some were fishermen, so they're blue-collar workers. Really couldn't get a better job than fishing, so they did that. Some were very were zealots, so they were very anti-Roman government. They wanted to overthrow this oppressive government. Some, just a few weeks later, earlier, were working for the government, helped fund the government. These weren't the most innovative guys. They weren't creative. They weren't famous. They didn't come from a good family line. They weren't rich. I mean, if Time magazine was around in Roman time, they wouldn't be the 100 most influential people. None of them would be there. I mean, this was a ragtag bunch of dudes, a bunch of losers. They couldn't get anything right. They couldn't even get it right right before he tells them. In verse 6, he says, they're, they're asking, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're like, all right, is it go time. You've risen. Let's go, still, let's go show Caesar what's up. Let's go do it. It's go time, right? 
They still don't get it. You see Jesus going, all right. You have a better chance of changing the world with the cast of Jersey Shore than you do with these dudes. If you don't know what Jersey Shore is, heaven bless you, man. That's, that's 30 minutes of your life you'll never get back. If you last that long. So they're a bunch of losers. They're in a bad location. The Roman Empire this time, the cities were Rome, Alexandria, Ephesus, and Corinth. They were in Omaha. And they're being told, go change the world from here. Jerusalem was a backwoods, forgotten city. It's where the, for the Roman government, that's where you send your leaders that you really don't want to mess with, that maybe they were a pain in the butt, maybe they were just, you know, they were one of those guys that you're just like, let's just put them over there. And they got their little council in, in Jerusalem and just take care of that. They really did, it was an afterthought. And he's saying from here, with you guys, you're going, you will be my witnesses. So it was a bit overwhelming because the message they were told to go out with was the message they just saw earlier their leader get killed with. But here's the important thing to see in this. It was not a command. It was not a request. It was a promise. Jesus was not asking them, will you guys go be my witnesses? He was not saying, well, maybe you can be my witnesses if you, know, you get the right team together and you guys fundraise and get right network and no he's saying you will be my witnesses Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, end of the earth it's too big for it's too big for the disciples and really if we think about it, it's too big for us on our own strength it's impossible to go and make disciples to go and be witnesses for Jesus and see any change happen and that's how Jesus wanted it he wanted this ragtag bunch of dudes that the world would look at and go, you're putting them together to go do this? Good luck. He wanted it to, be, to come from not the mega cities of Rome and Alexandria, not New York, not Chicago, not LA, but Omaha. Because in that, he receives the glory. His power is on display, not ours. We are on our knees in awe of his power. And mission becomes about the power of God and messy people who don't have it all together. I was reminded about this this morning at Starbucks. I got here early, ran through through this, you know, thought it was all right. That'll work. Went to Starbucks. I really have, I don't know if it's addiction, but I like Starbucks. A lot. I have a gold card. Um, so I go to Starbucks. I, I'm there. I get my coffee. And I'm not, I'm not smart enough to order really nice drinks at Starbucks because I think I get scared. So I just get coffee and, like, soy milk. Um, I don't know, latte, grande, low-fat, non-skim. I, I don't even know what I'm saying. Um, so I order just a regular bowl of coffee. And I'm like, oh, I'll put a little more half and half in there. Well, half and half stuck. And... Screw, unscrew it. And now I'm thinking on the way there, I'm like, man, I look, I look good. I look nice. Man, I got nice clothes on. You know, that's up here in front of y'all. It's going to be good. 
turn it, thing falls, half and half all over right here. <laughs> this is at 8 o'clock, an hour before first service. I'm like, really? <laughs> For real? Like, and at that moment, God's like, they're talking about my power overcoming messiness, remember? Just remember that. It dried. <laughs> you can see it. But I was humbled this morning in a real life example that our weakness is used for God's glory. So with the promise of this mission to go to the end of the earth came the promise of the power for the mission. And that's mark number two is the power. Promise came with the promise of the sending of the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus had promised him, had promised the disciples this sending in John 16. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So Jesus had promised this. And in chapter 2 of Pentecost, you have all these um, Jewish people gathering in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire, all over the states, and they're all speaking different languages. They're all there for Pentecost. And there, as the disciples are waiting and praying, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, waiting for this promised power to come, the Holy Spirit descends on them like flames. And all of a sudden, they're speaking the gospel. They're preaching Jesus in all the different languages. These there are just like, I hear the gospel. I hear about Jesus in my language. I don't think these guys, are these just the fishermen guys in Galilee? And they're speaking in my language, the gospel. And Jesus, I mean, and Peter, the one who denied Jesus not too long ago, stands up, proclaims the gospel. Get some water here. He proclaims the gospel boldly (coughs) and tells them, that Jesus you crucified lives now. They're cut to the heart. Many turn and repent. This isn't the only place you see the Holy Spirit dwell in the disciples' lives, empower the disciples for mission and for life. Chapter 2, Pentecost. Chapter 3, you see the healing of a paralyzed beggar. Chapter 4, you see the disciples asking for boldness in the midst of opposition, and the room shakes, to, and they are given the boldness. Chapter 5, the uh, Holy Spirit keeps the church pure. When you have a couple members lying to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit takes them out. Chapter 6 and 7, the empowering of the deacon-like leaders for ministry. Chapter 7, you see Stephen being empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel and to stand firm in light of his death. Chapter 8, you see the overthrowing of magic that Simon brings. The Holy Spirit empowering that. In chapter 9, you see the conversion of of Paul. Paul was a terrorist to the church. He was Mark bent on killing Christians. One of the greatest enemies of the church at that time. Holy Spirit comes. Jesus knocks him off the floor. Holy Spirit comes, transforms him. He becomes one of the greatest leaders the church has ever known. Writes most of the New Testament. And in all this, the Holy Spirit was not seeking worship or glory for himself. Instead, He's empowering the disciples and through miraculous healings, through everything else, 
He is pointing people to the glory of Jesus Christ. It started with the promise from Jesus. Then they waited and prayed. And now it relies on their dependency on him. The same goes for us today. We are Holy Spirit dependent people. The Holy Spirit is what illuminates our hearts and minds to the gospel for the first time where we believe. The Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts as we believe. And it takes this from information. Because without the Holy Spirit, this is just information to our blind eyes. The Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts and minds and makes this transformation in our lives. Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Brings us to repentance so that we may look more and more like Jesus day by day. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to speak boldly the gospel message to the world. The Holy Spirit gives us boldness to pierce the darkness with light of the gospel, with light of Jesus. Holy Spirit empowers all of this. And we, are, we need to see how dependent we are on the Holy Spirit. Not just for the mission, but for all of life. And so my question, and I asked this in first service, I'll ask you guys. Where are we today with this? I know from my own life at times, it's easy to practically ignore the Holy Spirit. Or to kind of be nervous about the Holy Spirit. We see guys in the Holy Spirit's name misused and mistreated on TV. And so at times we're pretty nervous. We're, 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 we treat the Holy Spirit more like that cousin you invite to the party that you're just kind of scared he's going to do something weird eventually. If we talk too much about him, he might show up and things might get really weird. But let, let, let us see this, that Jesus says this is a requirement for the Christian life, to depend on the Holy Spirit. Disuse of the Holy Spirit does not, Sam Storm says this, disuse of the Holy Spirit does not mean misuse, it means proper biblical use. We are dependent people on the power of the Holy Spirit. This is God himself living within us, giving us the power. This is God himself descending on us. And John Stott, an English pastor, says it best. He says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth. No fellowship without the unity of the Spirit. No Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit. And no effective witness without his power. Hear this. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. We are Spirit-dependent people. Like the early church was, we are the same. And here's the beauty of it. That same spirit now dwells within us. That spirit that descended on Jesus at his baptism. That spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That spirit now dwells within us and empowers us and emboldens us for our life and for our mission. Take that as an encouragement. Take that as a call for dependency. From Pentecost comes a community, the church. That's Mark 3, the community. Pentecost was this explosive start. It was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And from it came a new community. Let me just read um, what happened after Peter's sermon. 
It says, those who received his word, Peter's word, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This community that came from Pentecost and seen especially in the first nine chapters of Acts has a few features we need to look at because these features also carry over to what our, our community is like. One is the first one is they're spirit-filled. Cover this in the power of the Holy Spirit, but they are spirit-dependent people. Number two is they're, and they're Jesus-centered worshipers. You know, we're all diverse in this room, and probably a lot of us, if we didn't have Jesus in common, we really wouldn't hang out. But the center of the church, the center of who we are at Desert Springs, the center of this morning is Jesus. The music is about Jesus. The sermon is about Jesus. Our fellowship is made by Jesus. Our mission is to go out and proclaim Jesus. If you miss Jesus, you miss everything. We are Jesus-centered worshipers. He is our King. He is our Lord. He is our God. They were grace-saturated people. They were a family. See, in chapter 4, they cared and sacrificed for each other. Those that had much took care of those within the body that had little. Here's one thing that I think we overlook sometimes when we read the book of Acts. They were messy. They were messy. There's so much we can learn in the book of Acts about how to be a church, how to be a community of God, how to um, be on mission as a body. But sometimes we, with rose-colored glasses, we look back and go, oh, if we could just be just like the early church. We need to remember, they were sinners too. They were messy and broken too. They were in process becoming more like Jesus day by day too, and they didn't always get it right. Chapter 5 of Book of Acts, you've got two members that want to look more holy and more generous than they really are, so they lie about how much they give. Chapter 6, the church is exploding in size, so widows are being ignored. Needs are not being met. It was still messy. There were still holes not being met. There were still cracks in the foundations. There were still cracks in the walls. So if you're here today, let me just say this. If you're here today, you're, you're just going from church to church looking for the perfect church. If you're going to that church, man, that, that church was, they didn't meet my needs. I wasn't, you know, no one said hi to me. Well, sorry about that. And you're here and you're going, this, is, man, this church is awesome. This church is, man, this church is on point. They're, they're great. It's going to be awesome. Give us time. <laughs> Give us time. You'll see the cracks. Give us time. We're still all in process. We're all still sinners who need grace daily, who need Jesus every single day. So we're going to get things wrong. We're going to mess up. While they were messy, they were also attractive. And I don't mean how they looked. This is a ragtag bunch of people from all over. It says, day by day, attending the temples, chapter 2, at the end of that, what I had just read. 
says, um, tending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. This is a joy-filled community, a community like no other that the Roman Empire really had seen. Paul describes the new humanity, and you got historians that say the Caesars looked at it and said this is a new kind of humanity. It's a new kind of race of people because this was unlike anything else. They didn't care about status. Nobles helped slaves. Women were cared for and given good positions, and they were looked at as actual humans. Widows were not left on their own. They They were given, their needs were met. Orphans were cared for. This was a community like no other that took care of themselves, that took care of each other and took care of those outside the family. This was a community that felt love that they didn't deserve. As Paul says in Ephesians, this is a community that had seen grace, undeserved love and favor from God and has been lavished on them and they're lavishing it out to others. This was a community like no other. Rodney Stark is a sociologist. Um, he's a Christian. One of his, uh, he's written books about the early church. And one of his things was he wanted to see how this church just exploded. He, said, he says that he saw this from going from Acts 1-8, right? This small little group, ragtag bunch of losers in Omaha. How it went from that to 300 years later, you got 30 million Christians. So he looked at, he looked at very, and he, I mean, he says, we understand the theology behind it. We understand the grace of God, the sovereignty of God, God's just powering it. We'll see that in a minute. He also said, what was it about this community? Why was this community looked upon? And here's what he says. Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships, able to cope with many urgent problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to to cities faced with epidemics, fire, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. He says later, but perhaps above all else, Christianity brought a new conception of humanity to a world saturated with capricious cruelty and vicarious love of death. This community that is empowered by the Holy Spirit has had their eyes open to it. They were enemies and God loved them. They were sinners that were hopeless and God has given them grace. And he's done it by coming down in flesh, in Jesus, living the life we are called to live but won't and can't because we're sinners and rebels to the throne and in love going to the cross and and dying in our place, taking the sacrifice for our sins. This is the love that motivates and compels the Christian church. 
This is the love of Christ. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians is we are compelled by the love of Christ. This community felt that love, heard the love of Christ, and Christ said, now extend that love, and they did. Not perfectly. But here's the question I ask. And I ask, I'm going to ask this here at Desert Springs, and if you come to Redemption Church, you'll hear this a lot. In 10 years, 2021, 20, if Desert Springs or Redemption Church are just wiped off the map, gone, overnight, would Albuquerque and Rio Rancho miss them? Or would it be just another space to fill? Community group leaders, if your community group stopped meeting in your, in your neighborhood, whatever neighborhood you meet in, would they miss that community group? Or would it just be more places to park now? Would they miss a community of love, care, sacrifice, compassion? That's what we must keep asking ourselves constantly. Now, this does not mean that everyone loved the Christians. Because while the community may have had favor, and people were curious about this new humanity that seemed to be existing, the message in the heart of the community met fierce opposition. It still does today. That's the fourth mark, is the opposition and the unstoppable expansion. while a community of love gains favor, while a community that loves neighbors will always get favor. The name of Jesus to some will bring about life upon life. It will be aroma of sweet life and hope and joy, Paul describes in 2 Corinthians. But to some and to many, it will be the smell of death unto death. It will be a stench that will be hated. The apostles knew this. The disciples knew this. They had seen their leader killed for this message. They had seen this, their leader killed for who he was. And they felt it right from the beginning. In chapter 4, after he, the healing of a beggar, and Peter saying, it's not me who healed him. Why look at me? I'm just a man. Jesus healed him. Jesus is alive. The one you crucified lives He didn't mention that name. <laughs> it actually says, the leaders got annoyed. They got annoyed and they arrest them. And they go, well, they're doing good deeds. Let's just see if we can just shut them up about Jesus. And they just say, please, you know, just stop talking about Jesus. Don't mention his name. See, the world will love good works as long as you stay quiet about Jesus. But we're called to good works and the word of Christ to be proclaimed. They say, can't do that. They stay bold. And then in chapter 5, they're arrested again. This time they are beaten. The leader trying to figure out how to stop this movement. They beat him up. Sent him on their way. It says they left there rejoicing because they were able to feel the afflictions that Christ endured. They were able to relate with Jesus in these afflictions. And I think it even goes deeper than that for them. I think they went away rejoicing in this opposition because the last time they felt heat like this, 
was when Jesus was arrested and they fled. The last time Peter really felt this kind of heat where his physical well-being was in danger, he denied the, knowing the Lord Jesus three times. And this time, by their prayers, by the power of the Holy Spirit who has answered their prayer to stay bold, they take the beating and still proclaim Christ. They say the Holy, they see the Holy Spirit working in them and transforming them, and they go away rejoicing, saying, it's not like last time. We didn't run. We didn't cower. We still proclaimed Jesus in the face of it. God is giving us boldness. God is working in us. And we are going forward with this. And here's the thing. The opposition will lead to the death of Stephen. He's one of the first deacon-like leaders in the church. And from his death, a great persecution arises. It says in Acts 8.1, And there arose on that day a great persecution, on the day that Stephen was killed, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And we're going to see next week that the opposition gets more and more intense. But here's the thing that we need to remember as we read this, we need to remember our own lives. Each time something like this happens, the church grows and the message spreads. For instance, when they were first arrested, the disciples in chapter 4 says they, were arrested, they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to 5,000. We can see, especially after Stephen's death. I mean, Stephen's death was meant to squash this movement. They had arrested him, told him to be quiet. They weren't quiet. They arrested him again. They told him, I mean, they beat him up. Didn't work. They're still proclaiming. Now there's more leaders starting to proclaim this message. So they, finally they kill them. And they, they start breaking out in persecution in Jerusalem, saying, let's just wipe out this movement here and now before it goes any further. Let's stop it. And here's what happens. They spread to Jerusalem, um, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. But you'll be my witnesses In Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. His promise remains. The gospel goes forth. It goes to Judea and Samaria. What they meant to stop the church just expanded it. As the church was staying a little more clustered in Jerusalem, all of a sudden it's out now into Judea and Samaria. The gospel is going out. And the leader there who watched Stephen be killed Gave approval to it. Two chapters later, we'll see him go to kill more Christians, to wipe out the church. Jesus doesn't just meet him. Jesus confronts him, knocks him off his horse. Holy Spirit empowers him, comes upon him. He is converted. He sees who Jesus really is as King of kings, Lord of lords, and that he needs Jesus, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. And Jesus says, I am going to use you to go proclaim the message to the Gentiles. His name is Paul. He's written most of the New Testament. At the end of Acts, he is in Rome at the end of the earth to proclaim the message to Caesar. Try to stop it. They try to stop it. They try to stop it. It expands and grows. It expands and grows. It expands and grows because it's not about the strength of men. 
And what's interesting is the best explanation for all of this comes from one of the opposition's leaders. Gamaliel, Gamaliel, I can't know how to say his name. Gargamel, Gamaliel. One of the Jewish leaders. I mean, this guy was one of the respected Jewish leaders. He was one of those guys where you have a room bunch of, uh, with a bunch of young, fiery church planners. And we're just all talking, oh, we got you, da, da, da. like sometimes when me and Clint get together. He just, this is the guy that stands up and we're like, ah. okay, you talk. You're smart. You're wise. So this is this, is this guy. And he's actually the mentor of Paul before Paul's converted. Here's what he says. He rises up as the, they're trying to figure out, how do we stop this? How do we crush this movement? Here's what he says. Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Friends, Jesus grabbed, chose a bunch of losers bunch of messy, broken men started in a place that no one would have said that's where you strategically start a movement. It met opposition around every bend because it wasn't about the power of man but the power of God unto salvation. 2,000 years later, we're in Albuquerque, New Mexico proclaiming the name Jesus on the other side of the earth. It cannot be stopped. They may kill us. They may shut us up. They may try to shut us up. It will not be stopped. Because it's not our power. It is the power of God controlling this. Why? Because the king lives. Because the king reigns. He has defeated death, hell, and the world at the cross, and he has risen again. And we are called to live, pushing forward, knowing this. This was their motivation, and this is the fifth mark, the motivation. See, the book of Acts at its heart, it's not about the church. It's not about the apostles. It's like every other book in the Bible. It's about Jesus. the leader they had walked with for three years, the leader they had seen tortured and killed as they ran and hid, had risen. The tomb was and is empty. This was the truth they were called to be witnesses to, witnesses that the king lives. The game has changed. God has come. He cannot be held by even death. He is who he said he was. He can do what he said he can do. Forgive our sins. Give us life eternal. 
And we are what he said we were. Sinners and rebels and enemies to the throne in need of his love and grace. And he freely extends it now to us. And he calls us to trust him. To believe in this resurrection. To believe that he now lives. And he sends us to go and proclaim this message. This is what they tell the leaders when they tell the leaders to be quiet about Jesus. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. Which is a pretty rhetorical question. Whether God thinks I should listen to you or him. You must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We have seen and heard the risen Lord Jesus. We have seen him and he has sent us. Friends, Christians, we must speak about what we've seen and heard of the gospel in our lives. We must speak about what we've seen and heard about the Lord Jesus, his risen living, and what that means for the world around us. Friends, if you're coming in here tonight, today just hoping to find something to improve your life, just something to make you better. Maybe something to fix your marriage. You're, you're asking the wrong questions. First question is, who is Jesus? Has he risen? Do you believe it? If he has risen, then what does that mean for your life? Because when you see who Jesus truly is, when the Spirit opens your eyes to the truth about who Jesus is, everything changes. Things may get tougher. Things may get harder. Diseases may come. But our king lives, and where he goes, we will go too. This has to be our motivation, Christian. This has to be our motivation for planting churches. This has to be our motivation for loving our neighbors, to proclaim that the risen king has defeated death, defeated hell, defeated sin, and there is forgiveness from him. And that it is needed. And that we are enemies apart from it. And we will get what we deserve. And that is hell and punishment without it. Without his love and forgiveness covering us. We must believe and we must trust in him. This is the message we go out with. And Jesus calls us to the gospel, to himself. He at the same time, like the disciples, sends us with this message out. We're going to see next week what the marks of this ministry were, was in the second part of Acts. Well, let me ask you, do you believe that the Lord has risen? Do you believe that Jesus historically has died and has risen and now reigns and lives and that the gospel is real and true? Because we're about to sing about his resurrection. We're about to sing that he has risen and defeated death. And do we believe it? Can we sing, oh, death, where is your power? Oh, sin, where's your sting? Can we sing any of these and really mean it? Now, I'm not asking you to fake it. Here's what I'm asking. Let's sing it like we believe it. Let's sing it like it's real. Let's sing it like our king has risen. See, there's a few things I'm really excited about in my life. Jesus. My wife, my kids. 
ministry. Love of basketball. <laughs> and sometimes this goes, you know, just being honest, sometimes it varies. But how can I, I get more excited about this than this truth? I'm not saying that you have to bust out sparklers and start running up and down the aisles. But I'm saying, do we really, are we really proclaiming something we believe when we go, Christ is risen from the dead. Christ is dead. We're saying he's risen from the dead and that changes everything. Let us proclaim it to ourselves. Let us go out to the world and proclaim it. And let us sing with passion this afternoon, this morning, whatever it is right now. First service, and they brought it. You got at least two cups of coffee in you. I do, if you can't tell. (laughs) And let's sing it like our Lord Jesus is here reigning and ruling because you know what? He is.